Psalm 51. This morning we're going to finish a four-part expositional series entitled Godly Repentance. In order to set the course toward our final destination, let's open our ears once more and listen to what Yahweh has revealed through his servant David. Psalm 51, the superscription says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold. You desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from Blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Please take a seat. One common denominator that can be observed when you step back and ponder the disunity in the universal church is worship style. Usually with no malicious intent, American Christians have in their minds that worship involves one primary and indispensable component and the rest are debatable, adaptable, or even disposable. What component do I speak of? Music. 
I've been in discussions several times that reveal people, boil uh, worship down to music. But not just any sort of music. Music that's uplifting. Music that's either traditional or contemporary. Quote, unquote. How about music that is upbeat and not, quote, unquote, dead? How about music that makes me feel like I'm worshiping? Whatever that means. Music that's simple and repetitive. How about music that's new and fresh and relevant? Or music that's only about God's love and mercy and grace because the God of heaven possesses no other attributes than that, right? I could go on and on listing the various opinions that you've probably heard and preferences of people that you've probably heard with regard to the common view of the centerpiece of Christian worship being music. But what if I told you that the Bible does not even suggest or imply that our idea of music is to be the centerpiece of worship. The Bible does not even imply that. But you don't have to take it from me. You can take it from David in Psalm 51, where he reveals when and how Repentant believers yearn to worship God. That is the final facet of godly repentance revealed in Psalm 51, verses 14 and following. We see that it involves a plea for renewed worship. And I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. You will see very clearly... You'll see very clearly that this worship that David reveals involves much, much more than singing. That's part of it. But our worship as redeemed, repentant believers does not simply boil down to our favorite music. But before we get to that final facet, let's let's briefly review the previous four since this is really the fifth week that I've been in this psalm since I missed last Sunday. As you recall, we've seen the plea for divine pity in verse 1, a plea for spiritual cleansing in verses 2 and 7. He prays as he confesses his personal guilt in verses 3 and 4. He confesses his moral impotence in verses 5 and 6. And then two weeks ago, we saw that he made a plea for renewed fellowship or an exhaustive plea for renewed fellowship. Remember, there were ten specific petitions that were part of his overall plea for renewed fellowship. Today, David reveals the last facet, which is a plea for renewed fellowship in verses 14 and following. True worship is an activity that's impossible to engage in until one is forgiven. And we'll see in this section of Psalm 51 that renewed fellowship involves three components. It involves teaching. 
It involves singing, and it involves offering. That's worship. That's biblical worship. So let's dive in here. This first component of renewed worship is worship and teaching. Worship and teaching. Next slide. Worship and teaching. Hit it again. Worship and teaching. Look at verse 13. David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Notice the then. Before the then, we are to assume that while there was unconfessed sin, David could not teach God's ways. The then, which is inserted here to remind us that teaching God's law in the right state comes after forgiveness and reconciliation with God occurs via repentance. When one experiences this renewal and fellowship with Yahweh, the natural and immediate and ongoing response is to talk about God to people. We teach his ways. We expound his ways. We simply don't go into our private, personal life in silence like a monk or a member of a secret society. I've heard many people say that their relationship with Jesus is extremely personal and private. Meaning they don't ever talk about it. It's no one's business. And therefore they never look for open doors. To teach people God's ways. But that's not a mark of saving faith. That's not a mark of godly repentance. In actuality, if you don't have a yearning to teach people about God, it's an indication that you've never experienced what David experienced in Psalm 51. Look closely at what David says. I will teach transgressors your ways, meaning that he will expound God's ways to sinners like himself. Now, what ways does David refer to? Is he talking about all of God's laws? Is he talking about all of God's actions, like what he has done in the covenants or things of that nature? Or is he talking about all of God's attributes? Well, in the the context, the tone and the theme of this prayer steers us towards the idea That David intends us to think about God's ways as being his grace, his hesed, his loyal love, his mercy, forgiveness. Which implies you have to understand the doctrine of sin before you understand forgiveness, right? And renewal. In other words, David is making a vow to teach other sinners How to find forgiveness. This is an essential component of your worship. And the result is this. Sinners will be converted to you. Just to say they'll repent. They'll repent. Now this is a fundamental truth that you and I need to be reminded of this morning. Sinners won't repent unless they know how. And they can't know how unless you tell them. What comes to mind is Romans 10.14. How then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? 
And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And Paul asks rhetorically again, how will they hear without a preacher? Who was David's preacher? Did David have one? It was Nathan, remember? So even King David had a preacher. And that preacher was bold, wasn't he? He had the audacity to stand before the throne and say, you are this man. A few weeks ago, I received a call from a man who wanted to meet with me. He said that he needed someone to talk to, a military guy. He wanted to talk about a problem he was having. And when we met, he disclosed to me that he was troubled and guilt-ridden because he had developed romantic emotions towards a married woman who was his friend. And as he sat across from me, he told me that he knew it was wrong, but trying to justify and rationalize this thinking, he told me that the lady's husband was negligent, never around he was mean to her and so she was needy and lonely now there were more details of the story but I'll spare you those when he finished this long story I chimed in and I said do you want to hear my take on it he looked at me like, a, like that was a dumb question he said yeah that's why I'm here I looked him in the face and I said, stop. Stop having these feelings. If you don't stop and you choose to allow desires to lead you, it will end in ruin for everyone. But more than that, as you've admitted to me, God said it's wrong to cover your neighbor's wife. You see, this guy didn't need to be coddled. He didn't need to be told he was the victim. He didn't need to be told I understood his feelings. He needed a preacher to go to him and say, repent. That was an opportunity for me to share with sinners God's way. And that opened up the door to share the gospel. That's what you get to do too. You all need to develop a lifestyle where you are teaching God's ways in this setting. Well, not exactly because I'm not everybody's the preacher. But you're teaching one another in the confines of the local church. But you're also teaching people whom God brings into your path. In that sense, you're a preacher. It's part of our worship. You know, to my shame, prior to my conversion, I would not have given him. I would not have given him that counsel. But now that I have been forgiven and have been renewed in my worship of Yahweh. 
I want to teach sinners like that man and like me every chance I get. So should you. The second component of renewed worship is singing and worship. Worship and singing, verses 14 and 15. Now, this is going to be a fun discussion, okay? So, I might be a little bit more conversational with you on this one. Because it's a subject that all of us have opinions about. It's a subject we all get really fired up about. We're going to talk about music. But first, let's deal with what David says in verse 14. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Wow, is that a heavy word? Blood guiltiness. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the murder of Uriah. What you see in your English translation literally is the plural Hebrew word, which means bloods. Deliver me from bloods, O God, is what it literally says. It's a figure of speech referring to the effect of murder. David had blood on his hands. After his devised, premeditated plan to put Uriah on the front lines of battle came to fruition. Remember, that was all an evil ploy to deceive people into thinking that his relationship with Bathsheba was legitimate. And so by abusing his authority to end an innocent life, David became blood guilty. I can only imagine how his spirit-induced conscience would probably cause him to lay awake at night, regretting and agonizing over this atrocious act. So much so that it sealed his lips. That he could not sing. He could not teach. With blood on his hand, he could not worship God rightly until he knew he was delivered from the guilt and punishment for his crime. So he prays again for deliverance. But also in verse 14, he says, Then, after I have been forgiven, my tongue will sing joyfully of your righteousness. Again, notice the repeated word then, which is to help us understand that the joyful singing and worship is supposed to be another response to being reconciled to God. The music sung as part of believers' worship experience is only meant for those whom have been forgiven. So like David, we must develop and maintain the bold conviction that the singing we partake in, or partake of, is to be done by truly repentant people because they're joyful for a very specific reason. They've been forgiven. Proud and unrepentant people They don't need anything. So what do they have to be thankful for? They don't see the need for mercy, or for grace, or for forgiveness, so they don't ask, they don't receive it. Therefore, they have nothing to sing about. But you are given the knowledge and the assurance of salvation, aren't you? So you can come to the house of worship and sing because you've been forgiven. 
Did you know that's why we sing? That's why we sing. Because you've been forgiven. If our singing is not a response to being saved from the wrath to come, and two, does not center around the person of who God is, then listen, we've redefined worship. We sing as one body because we've been saved. Not because we're being saved or because it saves us. We sing because we're already saved. We understand the weightiness of that. So think about that for a second. How many religions view worship as a means of grace? Many. But we view worship as a response to grace that's been given. Now, look closer at the text that not only implies why we sing, it also implies how we sing and what we sing. This is where it's going to get controversial. Ready? In verse 14... The NASB says, it reads, my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Anybody have an ESV? If you have an ESV, it says, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. I don't say this very often because I'm partial to the NASB. But this time the ESV takes the cake. Because it's more literal. Literally, the Hebrew verb is more dramatic and has a more dramatic connotation than the English. It literally means to give a ringing cry. So listen to this literal rendering. My tongue may give a ringing cry to your righteousness. You know what that reveals to us? You know what that little exegetical nugget helps us to understand? Is that your singing should be loud. Your singing should be heard by the people around you. It doesn't have to be an annoying shout or an uncontrolled noise. But we can't take take this text at face value without walking away, understanding that the music in worship is not meant to be a low volume. So, at SV Bible Church, from now on, I want, I want you to sing louder. I want to be able to hear you more from the front row. If you can't carry tune in a bucket, so what? Neither can I. That's why I make sure my microphone's off before I start singing. But we are expressing our thankfulness, and we should do it loudly. Now today, there are several reasons why people in church don't sing. And they just stand there with their mouths shut. Or they just mumble along. Maybe even pretending they're singing. Sometimes it's because the leaders do a poor job at leading and selecting music that's singable. And I want to elaborate on this point real quick. I want to elaborate on this. In one of his articles entitled... Why I Didn't Sing When I Visited Your Church. Tim Challies, you guys know who Tim Challies is? Anybody know who Tim Challies? He, he is arguably the most well-read or widely read Christian blogger today. So if you guys like to read blogs, read Tim Challies. 
95% of his stuff is solid. It's good. Well, he wrote five reasons why he wasn't singing when he visited a particular church on some Sunday morning. I want to summarize these for you, okay? He wrote, I didn't sing in your church because I was not familiar with the songs, number one. Listen to this. No, th- this is like fighting words right here. There weren't any hymns or even any familiar worship songs. So there's a reason why Daniel and I select some of the most well-known, historic, rich, beloved hymns. Because the more you're familiar with a song, the louder you'll probably sing it. Second, he said, I didn't sing in your church when I visited because the songs weren't congregational. Most of them seem to have been written with the band in mind more than the congregation. Thirdly, he said, I didn't sing in your church when I visited because your singers would ad lib. Twice through the final chorus, they sang it one way. And then on the third, they did, they did something I didn't even see coming. And I couldn't follow. The fourth reason why Tim didn't sing in the church he visited was because he couldn't hear the congregation. I think we can all relate to that in some way, right? If you're the only one, if you, if you, can, if you're, if you can hear yourself and that's it, we, we, we get embarrassed and we tone it down a little bit. He goes on to say, I wanted to learn from the people around me, but I couldn't hear them. This is kind of cheeky. He said, as I understand it from Colossians 3.16, a key element of congregational worship is hearing the congregation. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Fifthly, he said, I didn't sing in your church because it felt like a performance. Now, SV Bible can be accused of having some quirks of our own, like every church. But I can stand here with full confidence and say nobody can accuse us of having a performance-driven service. Would you agree with me on that? Do you feel like you're being entertained right now? Probably not. So, he said... It walked, he, he, he felt like it was a performance. He said they were in a darkened room, sitting in theater-style seats. The band was brightly lit on stage in front of the room, singing their own songs with the volume cranked way up. This set the context that struck me as more of a concert than church. I really enjoyed watching the band listening to them, but it felt like they were doing rather a concert than facilitating worship. So I finally just sat back and enjoyed the show, he said. So that, that's, that's, that's the Cliff Note version of the article. I encourage you to go read the whole thing. It's vital for us, brothers and sisters, it's vital to select songs that are familiar and appropriate for congregational singing. Plus, the music leader needs to be able to consciously Resist the urge to be a soloist. 
Otherwise, you won't be participants in worship of God. You will be spectators at a show. Now, quickly, listen to a few additional reasons why people don't sing in church. Sometimes it's because the congregation is full of spiritual zombies that have nothing to sing about. In other words, the church is cold and dead. Sometimes the congregation is stubborn and prideful because the style and the sound of the music does not meet their expectations. Sometimes men and women stand shoulder to shoulder in a pew and they keep their lips sealed because of the weight of unconfessed sin. Like David, which acts as a spiritual duct tape wrapped around the mouth. This is how we ought to sing. So if you can't feel like David admitted, if you can't make a ringing cry with your mouth in worship about Yahweh's righteousness, Why not? I don't believe it's because we have a weak or showy music leader. Dan does an excellent job. Excellent job leading us. We're blessed in a tiny church like this to have someone like Daniel. I hope you guys get that and don't take that for granted. He does an excellent job. So I don't believe that could be a reason. So if you, can't, if you feel like you can't make a ringing cry with your mouth, it's possible that you have a spiritual problem or you're stubborn or you have some unconfessed sin. In verse 15, David continues this desire to sing by saying, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Now, what a strange request, isn't it? The great leader of Israel's worship from the author of Israel's song book himself. He makes this plea because the joy had left his heart for a period of time because he harbored his sin. So David asked God to deliver him so that his tongue may give a ringing cry in verse 15. Then asked Yahweh to remove the seal from his lips to declare. Okay? So far we've talked about how to worship in music. To give a ringing cry. Have some volume to it. Now we get to the what. He says that my mouth may declare your praise. Let's unpack that a little bit. Declare, it means to announce or to make known, to inform, to publish, and to proclaim. Kind of like the word for preaching. So in essence, we need to grasp that our singing is like a sermon. Have you ever heard that before? 
that the songs we sing are like mini sermons. We're declaring something, we're making known something, and that thing we are making known is specific. It's praise. Praise is thanksgiving. This is why we must be discerning and critical of the songs we pick to sing. The scripture is saying here very plainly that our songs send a message to people. It informs people's thinking, it informs their worldview, and it informs their theology, which means it can either sanctify people or mislead people. And for some reason, I can't figure out for the life of me. So many of us love to critique the doctrine espoused in a sermon or a lesson, which is biblical. If the people in Acts were checking the scripture to make sure Paul was right, you guys better do it to me too. Or anyone else that you allow to influence you for that matter. But as, as long as the style, here's what happens. We're quick to critique the sermon, but when it comes to the music, typically, if, it, if it's according to our preferences, then the content of the lyrics get a free pass. Have you heard this before? I mean, how often have you yourself critiqued a sermon or a doctrinal thing that mm, just didn't sit well with you? Do you do that with the songs you listen to? Especially in worship. Very few in church history had a better view of music and worship than Martin Luther. He recognized that music was much deeper, had a much deeper purpose than what many of us realize. In one letter he wrote, Following the example of the prophets and the fathers of the church, I intend to make German psalms for the people. Spiritual songs so that the word of God, even by means of song, may live among the people. The purpose of the song is just to get the word of God into your mind. To give a message to you. Is that a little different philosophy of music than what you've heard before? Perhaps heard in a while? Brothers and sisters, our music, especially in this place, we need to sing it loudly. That's biblical also need to understand that it's sending a message and it needs to be in line strictly with the doctrine of God revealed in his word. Now, the third component here, worship, is worship and offering. Worship and offering, verses 16 and 19. Now essentially the main thrust of verse 16 focuses on what God does not want which is empty, dead, vain, religious ritual. Look at verse 16. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. Now, one thought comes to mind immediately after reading this is, why would Yahweh institute the sacrificial system if he did not take delight in it and if it didn't please him? 
Verse 16 is not a general repudiation of sacrifices because Yahweh did command the Jews to offer various kinds of sacrifices at varying times. That was a command. So we can't interpret this, verse 16, as meaning God despised all offerings. This, rather, is a repudiation of sacrifices offered by unforgiven sinners. This is an affirmation, in other words, of the inappropriateness of hypocritical worship. David is saying that the one who has not pled for pity and cleansing and confessed his transgressions does not please God in worship. Notice what the psalmist says, I would give it. If it pleased you, I would give it. But he knows that God does not want it. Because it would be a waste. So David continues to extrapolate on this idea in verse 17. Verse 16 dealt with what Yahweh despises in worship. And now he turns to what offerings are intended to be. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. And a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That is a key verse. Memorize that verse. Memorize it. So that by God's grace, we don't become hardened. The words broken and contrite, which also could mean crushed, figuratively refer to the sinner's attitude. The sinner's attitude in worship is to be broken and crushed. Is that not radically and diametrically contrary? to the words of the modern culture? Isn't it? I mean, aren't you told that we are to come to church as we are? That sounds nice, but it's not biblical. It's not. He says plainly, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. When Jesus said, come to me, which is really a command, not an invitation, remember? What was the qualifier? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. That means those who are broken and contrite hopeless and lost and to the end of their rope, they know that they need help and salvation. Those are the folks that Jesus says, come to me. He expects us to offer our bodies in a spirit of humility and submission. We are to come to this place like the tax collector in Luke 18, who Jesus says that he was even, un- listen to this, he was even unwilling to lift up his eyes towards heaven. But was beating his breast saying, be merciful to me. What's he say? What is it? No. 
definite article. The sinner. Be merciful, be merciful to me, O God, the sinner. That's important. We need to think like Paul. We need to think of ourselves as the chief sinner. Not a sinner among everyone else. Be merciful to me, O God, the sinner. See how that subtle difference makes such a big impact on your thinking? So God wants our hearts broken. Period. The outward act is is secondary. What's primary is the inner man. David knew from the beginning. 1 Samuel 16.7 says, you know this. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's very clear, brothers and sisters, that the heart needs to be contrite and broken in worship. Thousands of professing Christians gather on the Lord's day. They lift up their hands, which is fine. Don't feel like you can't do that here. (laughs) Isla's doing it. But some folks that lift up their hands, many, they don't have a contrite heart. They have a deserving heart. They think they deserve it. But if we're going to be biblical, we must bring our gifts, our financial gifts, whatever gifts we offer. We must bring our gifts and our services, our ministries to God with a mindset of thankfulness, singing joyfully, remember, praising God loudly, and brokenness. I need to deal with verses 18 and 19 quickly before I conclude. Some say they don't fit in with the previous 17 verses, but as one commentator noted, that they do fairly make a good extension to the psalm. So let's read that real quick again. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, for some of us who haven't had a whole lot of Old Testament teaching, this language is a little confusing, isn't it? I mean, it kind of, like, what's this have to do with David's psalm and all this stuff about Zion and Jerusalem and sacrifices and burnt offering, whole burnt offering, bulls, altar? I mean, we could talk about that for hours. But for the sake of time, I just need to summarize Zion is a reference to the people of Jerusalem. And the walls refer to not the literal physical walls, but they refer to Jerusalem's moral defense. In the same way the walls would physically be there to to help defend uh, against enemy attacks, David is praying that God would build the spiritual moral walls to defend the Hebrews, against spiritual idolatry. David is praying to Yahweh for the people to be morally defensive 
not like easily offended, but defensive as in being protected. As a result of spiritual renewal, so they can be spiritually fortified. Because David knows if the people in Jerusalem experience the same contrition as he did, then they will be protected from national idolatry and ultimately destruction. And so what we can glean from verses 18 and 19 is that after we repent and worship the God and worship God the way he wants, we too should pray that God would protect us from apostasy. Because just because you experience genuine repentance does not mean you're safe from further temptation and sin. So pray for God to keep you fortified. Now, the point of this message, and really the whole series, is not, let me be clear, is not to put you back under a cloud of guilt. It's not the purpose. The main thing to take away from Psalm 51 is this. God wants us to be reminded, as believers, that we must live holy lives. We must pursue godliness and we must resist temptation. We must live unstained in the world. It matters that we live set-apart lives. And when we do sin, there is much grace and forgiveness to be found. But listen, it necessitates that we come before the throne of grace and say, it's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of redemption. I confess my sin to you. I have sinned ultimately against you. Cleanse me, make me new, and restore to me the joy of my salvation, and allow me to worship you freely as I teach sinners your ways, as I sing with a ringing cry, and as I praise you, I'm thankful. When God hears that prayer overflowing from a contrite heart, He is so quick to forgive. He's quick to restore. He's quick to revive and replenish. But like David, if if we fail to repent and we harbor it, You will separate yourself from God. You will lose the joy. And you will come into this place with spiritual duct tape around your mouth. So, with a loving motive, let me ask you again. Is there any sin in your life that needs to be dealt with? A few indications of that being so is that you lack joy. You lack the desire to teach, to evangelize, to serve. Or you stand here and worship and you don't sing. 
brothers and sisters, the people who don't have joy usually have unconfessed sin. And sometimes not even knowing what sin to confess. The people who don't desire to teach or evangelize are lazy or negligent, and those are both sins. The people who come to worship on Sunday morning and stand there with more concern about their own preferences and opinions show that they could care less about declaring, preaching a message through their singing about God's righteousness. So I pray for all of us, including myself, that through the Word, the Holy Spirit will convict us of any sin so that we can repent like David and be restored and drawn into a closer and more intimate relationship with Yahweh. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we had the opportunity to expound on this wonderful psalm Thank you that we have this time to really plumb the depths of what David prayed here. I can confess to you, Lord, that I have sinned in ways I don't even know, ways I do know. And by your grace at this time in my life, you have caused me to collide with this wonderful truth. That I need to plead to you more for forgiveness. I need to plead to you for cleansing. I need to admit my inability to do good because I was born in sin. I need to pray and plead for renewed fellowship. And Father, I pray now that you will give me renewed zeal for worship, for the teaching and the singing the offering. Help us, Lord, to do as you have revealed in this text. I pray for all of those here who are under the conviction of the Spirit now. Give them the courage to repent. Give them the humility to pray like David. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.